This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Well, I am happy, very happy to introduce Monsignor Verdon um, for a special reason, because um, I started teaching Renaissance art at Stanford University last year, and I've had several students in my class who uh, have studied at the Bing Overseas uh, Studies in Florence with uh, Monsignor Verdon, and they come back and they are full of enthusiasm and, and passion for, for Renaissance art. So that I'd like to thank you for. Uh, Monsignor Verdon, a professor of art history at the Bryce Center for Overseas Studies in Florence, who uh, now is also the recipient of the 2007-2008 Bing Overseas Studies Program Award for Excellence in Teaching. Uh, Monsignor Verdon received his PhD in art history from Yale University uh, on a mannerist subject, which is very dear to me. And uh, he received his um, sacred baccalaureate in theology from the Facoltà Teologica dell'Italia Centrale. At present, he holds multiple positions, including that of being canon of Florence Cathedral and a member of the board of directors of the Cathedral Foundation of and Museum of Florence. This is a very important museum in Florence. If you have been to the city, I'm sure you have visited it. That is where one can see uh, spectacular works of art by Ghiberti and Donatello, which once were in the cathedral, but now are uh, in the museum. Uh, Professor Verdon is in particular a specialist of uh, Renaissance art and architecture in Florence. He has uh, too many publications to mention, but I'd like to point out a couple of his more recent, there is the book Michelangelo Theologo of 2005, uh, Michelangelo the Theologian. Then there is Cristo nell'arte europea, which Electa in Milan published in 2006, that's Christ in European Art. And finally, a monumental three-volume, L'arte sacra in Italia, Sacred Art in Italy. Today's lecture uh, is not gonna be Florentine, but it's on a Roman topic. It is entitled, Pagans in the Church, Raphael's School of Athens and Renaissance Cross-Cultural Dialogue. Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Verdon. Very sincere thanks for these uh, warm words of welcome. And uh, before I begin, uh, let me be the bearer of greetings to uh, many of you. Uh, I've had the joy of seeing uh, a good number of my own former uh, students in the uh, Stanford program in Florence uh, and uh, a number of uh, colleagues, uh, Stanford uh, professors and administrators uh, who have also uh, spent time in Florence. And uh, to all of you, uh, Linda Campani, our director, uh, and together with uh, Linda, uh, Anna and Fosca and Giovanna uh, and the others uh, who make up the Florence program uh, send their very warm uh, regards. Uh, so uh, in, in my person uh, today, it is as if the whole Florence program uh, were visiting uh, the campus. Uh, I'd also like to uh, say a particular word of uh, thanks to uh, Helen Bing. I've already said this upstairs, but uh, I think it's appropriate at the beginning of the lecture uh, 
to uh, reiterate uh, my personal gratitude for uh, her friendship uh, and uh, my, but also the program's gratitude for uh, her uh, generous support uh, for so many uh, of the projects that make the Florence program uh, excellent uh, and uh, quite apart from my own contribution. Uh, I believe uh, it is an excellent program. I, I'm not in a position to compare it to other of the uh, Stanford programs abroad, but uh, it seems to me that uh, certainly in comparison with the programs of other American universities uh, in Florence, uh, Stanford is not only uh, the oldest, uh, but uh, also still quite possibly the best. Among practically emblematic works of the Italian Renaissance and indeed of post-medieval Western art generally are frescoes painted between 1510 and 11 by a 27-year-old artist, Raphael Sanzio, in what then was Pope Julius II's private library, the room in the Vatican Palace later designated uh, the Stanza della Segnatura. The best known of these murals, occupying the almost eight meter width of the noble but by no means vast chamber, is that traditionally called the School of Athens, an assembly of ancient philosophers in a magnificent vaulted structure open to the sky and thus apparently still under construction. It is the image you see on the screen. At the center of this assembly, at the top of stairs descending from the vaulted hall, stand the two ancient Greek writers whom the Middle Ages and Renaissance considered the founders of Western speculative thought. At our left, Plato, with the dialogue called the Timaeus in his left hand, while with his right he indicates the heavens. And at our right, Aristotle, who holds the Nicomachean ethics as he gestures toward the earth. When the fresco was painted, the room was used as a library, we said. And thus, the books are important. It was, moreover, an age of humanist rediscovery of Greco-Roman culture, and thus equally important is the fact that the books are those of ancient thinkers. And it was an age convinced that it could equal the achievements of classical antiquity. It characterized itself as the Rinascita, the rebirth or renaissance. And thus it is highly significant that among the philosophers, several have the physical appearance of contemporaries. Plato is a portrait of Leonardo da Vinci, for example. Here you see Leonardo's self-portrait, a drawing now in Turin. Heraclitus is Michelangelo, who was then at work about 40 meters away in the Sistine Chapel. And Euclid is Donato Bramante, the architect to whom Pope Julius, just a few years earlier, had assigned the task of rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica. At the edge of the group following Euclid's geometry lesson is Bramante's young countryman, Raphael himself, like the architect, born and educated in Urbino. Raphael is the young man in the black hat looking fixedly out of the painting. So very rich in meaning is Raphael's School of Athens that the fresco is often studied in isolation as an autonomous statement of early 16th century intellectual and artistic self-awareness. Yet, in fact, as visitors to the Vatican Museums discover, many to their surprise, this famous work is part of a carefully constructed program 
with impressive murals by Raphael on the other walls and on the ceiling of the chamber. The side walls have windows, and so they're painted scenes alluding respectively to the history of law and to that of poetry are visually interrupted by large apertures and have less impact. But the scene occupying the unbroken eight-meter-wide wall opposite the School of Athens, an analogous assembly of thinkers known as the disputa, or disputation on the sacrament, is every bit as visually forceful as the School of Athens and seems to be compositionally complementary to it. The thinkers depicted are not philosophers, but rather theologians, spanning the then millennium and a half long history of Christianity. And at their center, we do not find illustrious individuals, but an altar on which stands a monstrance containing the consecrated bread wafer of the Eucharist. Above the Eucharist, among the clouds which sustain a second level of activity, we see the Holy Spirit, inspirer of the four Gospels, the dead and risen Christ displaying his wounds between Mary and John the Baptist in a heavenly assembly of Christian saints and holy men of ancient Israel, and finally, against an intentionally archaic worked gold background, God the Father blessing all. This scene, the Disputa, reminds us that while we are, yes, in a Renaissance humanist's library, the humanist in question was the Pope. His library is at Rome and specifically in the Vatican, in a city that is and at a place within that city which bear eloquent witness to continuity between the world of Plato and Aristotle and that of the Christian religious tradition. Rome, capital first of the Caesars and then of the popes, and the Vatican, built where the apostle whom the popes claim as institutional predecessor, St. Peter, was martyred in the first century and where his remains have been venerated from that time to this. I'm saying that in the economy of the overall program, this fresco, the Disputa, is actually more important than the School of Athens and unsurprisingly was the first fresco executed in the room. This fresco was also first in the order of vision, in the normal order of movement through the papal apartment at that time, that is, which brought visitors into the library through a door in the wall opposite this painting, opposite the disputa, which thus was the first thing seen. Raphael's stupendous summary of Catholic Christian belief with the Holy Trinity, Mary and the saints, the Gospels, the Eucharist, the Church on earth and in heaven, was understandably the first message transmitted to those entering the Pope's library. That said, a first conclusion suggests itself. Those entering the library from the East immediately saw the Disputa on the Western Wall, but became aware of the School of Athens on the Eastern Wall immediately after, as they turned and took in the chamber. Their perception was thus first of a universe of beliefs and ideas which they themselves shared, the Christian universe with the Trinity, the Eucharist, the Church, in front of them and then of another universe, that of Plato and Aristotle and the other ancient philosophers behind them. 
Actually, what was in front of them was more than they knew from first-hand experience, since above the earthly theologians debating the meaning of the Eucharist, Raphael shows the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ, and God the Father, not physically perceptible to believers in this life. Raphael's fresco adumbrates the beatific vision, that is, the unimpeded contemplative enjoyment of God and the full intellectual as well as spiritual and moral grasp of his being promised for the life to come. Entering from the east opposite the disputa and gradually becoming aware of the school of Athens, Renaissance visitors to the stanza must in fact have perceived themselves as occupying a temporal space somewhere between past and future, a present located between ancient Athens from which they had come and the heavenly Jerusalem toward which they were directed, a kind of privileged crossroads in the intellectual and spiritual journey of Western man. From this initial conclusion arise several obvious related questions. As Renaissance viewers looked from one to the other of Raphael's frescoes in the Stanza della Segnatura, did they see a connection? If so, in what did it consist? And was that perceived connection perhaps the real key to their reading of the whole room? The aim of my talk this afternoon is to propose answers to these queries. The first detailed description of the Stanza della Segnatura is that by Giorgio Vasari, published in 1550, but actually written some years earlier on the basis of impressions formed during several sojourns in Rome, starting in 1531, when Vasari was part of Cardinal Ippolito de' Medici's entourage. At that time and later, Vasari must have had access to the stanze, and numerous details in his account, in fact, suggest close on-site scrutiny. It thus comes as a surprise that Vasari badly mixes up major figures in the two main paintings, the School of Athens on the Eastern Wall and the Disputation on the Eucharist or Disputa on the opposite Western Wall. In practice, he discusses these two compositions as if they were a single scene of the School of Athens, which depicts an ideal assembly of pagan philosophers, he says that it shows when theologians reconciled philosophy and astrology with theology, and then transfers a figure we would expect to find in the disputa, which depicts an assembly of theologians, to the opposite side of the chamber, St. Matthew the Evangelist, whom Giorgio Vasari sees in the seated figure in the foreground of the school of Athens at the viewer's left, the figure normally identified today as Pythagoras, a pre-Christian thinker. Vasari goes so far as to imply direct interaction between the two frescoes. He says, certain astrologers in the school of Athens have inscribed figures on small tablets, and they send them to the evangelist by means of several very lovely angels, and the evangelists expound them. Now, the only figures Vasari could reasonably have taken for angels are in the disputa, whereas his astrologers stand in the school of Athens. So he seems to have imagined two-way traffic between the eastern and western wall, or to put it differently, to have thought of the two frescoes as a continuum, 
an unbroken visual and thematic flow in which, as he says, skillful composition of the whole story ensured Raphael's claim upon his contemporaries' respect. Most readers of Vasari's essay today are disoriented by his to-and-fro description. Gaetano Milanesi, the late 19th century editor of Vasari's works, called this passage un pasticcio, a hodgepodge. And George Bull, in a modern English translation of selections from the lives, characterizes it as very muddled. They are right, of course. Here, as in other parts of his monumental lives of the artists, Vasari got his facts skewed. Yet his confusion is instructive, arising as it does not from ignorance of the works discussed, as was the case with his glaring inaccuracies in regard to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, then already in France, or Michelangelo's Bruges Madonna, but rather from excessive familiarity. We have to ask why a trained 16th century observer, able to recall and reconstruct small details, would conflate the two principal images in the stanza into what, at certain points in his description, becomes a single visual and iconographic unit. To answer this question, we should remember that Vasari and other Cinquecento visitors did not study as we do from books or computer screens, but physically entered the room, stood in the middle, and turned from one to the other of the principal frescoes, also taking in the Parnassus and the images related to jurisprudence on the northern and southern walls, along with the ceiling allegories. Their experience depended on immersion, not extrapolation. It was conditioned, moreover, by familiarity with decorated rooms where the imagery on one wall found echoes and reverberations in that on the others, rather than by graphic or photographic reproductions that isolate a visual totality into discrete parts. To be sure, modern scholars, too, may visit the stanza, obviously, but habits of perception shaped by academic art history make it hard today to avoid fragmenting what Vasari saw as a continuous whole. Typically, 20th century viewers fight their way through crowds to get into the room and, amid the babble of guides and tour leaders, shift attention from masterpiece to masterpiece, seeing exactly what art books and slide lectures like this have taught us to see separate images. What is more, Renaissance Italians entered painted rooms such as the Stanza della Segnatura, confident that they would recognize what they saw and be able to make sense of the interlocking themes on the different walls. They visited an iconographical program, that is, as one visits acquaintances, expecting to understand the conversation and to take part in it on the basis of shared experience and interests. A famous example of such insider dialogue is the refectory at Santa Maria delle Grazie in Milan, where about 15 years before Raphael's frescoes in the Stanza della Segnatura, in the mid-1490s, Leonardo da Vinci had painted his Last Supper as part of a program, the other half of which was a crucifixion by local Lombard masters at the room's other end. For habitual visitors to the refectory, the friars themselves and educated laymen close to the community, the narrative and theological connections between the two scenes must have been compelling. 
On one wall, Jesus' announcement, Holy Thursday evening, that one of his disciples would betray him. And on the facing wall, the result of that betrayal, the crucifixion on Good Friday. In theological terms, visitors saw the gift Jesus made of his body and blood sacramentally, the institution of the Eucharist, and then directly opposite, the historical actualization when he gave up his life on the cross. As later in the Stanza della Segnatura, here too there was a temporal connection, a link between before and after, even though in the Milanese refectory it was the minimal distance from Thursday evening to Friday afternoon, from the Last Supper to the Crucifixion. The way Vasari saw Raphael's School of Athens and Disputa in the Papal Palace must have involved a comparable association of ideas and images on facing walls. Despite the greater temporal distance, the association must indeed have been more intense than what contemporaries experienced in the refectory at Milan. There, the conspicuous disparity between Leonardo's fluid figure style at one end of the room and the mediocre figures at the other interfered with a visitor's sense of unity. In the Stanza della Segnatura, by contrast, the consistent use of perspective on both walls and the uniform figure style created a powerful visual impression of a single scene. What is more, the virtually life-size scale of Raphael's figures, their natural movements, and the great number of contemporary portraits must have made 16th century visitors feel that the space they occupied in the center of the room was itself part of the composition, and that visitors were also players on a stage that stretched from the School of Athens to the Disputa, opening to left and right to the Parnassus and Jurisprudence images. Again, this is an experience for which Renaissance Italians had cultural equipment lacking in modern viewers. They were familiar with religious theater, where successive and related scenes in mystery plays might be performed on stages at opposite ends of a church nave or around the perimeter of a piazza, with the audience in between and thus automatically included in the action. The closest artistic parallels to Raphael's spatial and figural illusion in the stanza are indeed the frozen dramas at San Vivaldo, a Franciscan pilgrimage site in Tuscany, one of the early Sacrimonti, as they're called, where starting in the same years Raphael was at work in the stanza, anonymous architects and sculptors created similar audience involvement scenes. In one of these, pilgrims, as they walk through the woods, enter a space between two chapels. On each of these chapels is a proscenium-like edicule, and if the viewer turns to one side, on the stage in front of him or her are realistic painted terracotta relief figures of Jesus crowned with thorns and presented to the crowd by his torturers. Behind the visitor, on the facing stage of the neighboring chapel, also in high relief and realistically pigmented, stands the crowd looking across real space at Christ in the opposite edicule. Visitors thus become actors in the event. They're right between the crowd in the model terracotta relief and Christ presented to that crowd. 
visitors become members of the throng before which Jesus' suffering is displayed. Raphael achieved the same dynamic involvement of the visitor with more sophisticated means. His figures in the School of Athens do not look across at the disputa, like the crowd at San Vivaldo staring at Christ, but rather seem to move toward the other image, emerging from the depth of the magnificent vaulted structure in which Raphael situates them. This impression is especially strong in the two central figures, Plato and Aristotle, who appear to have paused momentarily in the course of an advancing movement, and then in Diogenes and Heraclitus, respectively sprawling on the steps and projected toward the front plane at right and left of center. In the disputa across the room, perspective and figure arrangement are used to get the opposite effect. Instead of advancing toward us, the figures at eye level, separated from the viewer by railings at right and left, move into the depth of the scene toward an altar to which a completely open pavement affords unobstructed visual access. Since, as noted, the normal traffic flow through these rooms introduced visitors through a door in the School of Athens wall facing the disputa, the impression on entering was that of advancing, like the figures in the disputa itself, toward the altar and the Eucharist. When the visitor took in the fresco behind him then, the School of Athens, and saw that Plato and Aristotle too were advancing, his own movement in the direction of the altar became part of a more significant reality, a stately progress of noble men through a splendid statued hall. Standing in the middle of the stanza, a Renaissance cleric or layman could believe himself a living component in the movement of history out of pagan antiquity through the present toward the eternity of Christ an eternity already glimpsed in the sacrament, sacramental bread displayed on the altar, believed to render really present those higher realities that Raphael shows above the altar, the Holy Trinity, and the communion of saints. The stanza de la Segnatura, we said, was Pope Julius' library, with book cabinets along the lower walls containing a fair sampling of the theological, philosophical, poetic, and legal works to which the frescoes allude. And the iconographic program was thus meant to situate the contemporary viewer within a grand procession of human thought leading to the vision of God himself. The room where the Pope kept his books was to be a summa of everything Italian Renaissance Christians believed about God's plan for human beings in time and in eternity. Another important fact should be underlined. The composition of the two main murals, the School of Athens and the Disputa, suggests that Raphael and those who advised him wanted this divine plan to be perceived as unfolding inside a church structure, the deep vaulted hall out of which the philosophers appear to move on one wall, and the railed-off area of pavement on the facing wall with an altar in a semicircular space, would have put Renaissance viewers inevitably in mind of the nave and apse, respectively, of a basilica. The architecture of the School of Athens, in fact, as scholars have uh, noted for years, evokes Bramante's project for the new basilica of St. Peter's, begun a few years earlier. And thus, the suggested progress of human knowledge toward God 
would have been seen as occurring in the church, that is, within the historical institution of which the Pope is visible head. This ecclesiology, this range of ideas about the church as institution, did not originate in the 16th century. The same basic themes are present in numerous medieval works, including the program of the so-called Spanish Chapel in Florence, which Raphael could easily have known. What is new in the Stanza della Segnatura is Raphael's depiction of pagan thinkers actually in the church. Few Renaissance images suggest a comparably unitary vision of intellectual history. The convictions underlying this highly original reading go far back in Christian history. Among the first defenders of the Christianity of the pagan philosophers was St. Augustine, himself schooled in ancient thought and before his conversion a sometime adherent of Neoplatonic mysticism. In a beautiful passage in his treatise on true religion, Augustine argued that if Plato were alive today and willing to answer our questions, he would teach that truth is not seen with bodily sight, but by the mind alone, and that every soul which cleaves to truth becomes perfectly happy. Carnal pleasure, to which Augustine had been no stranger in his youth, impedes the soul from attaining this beatific state, he argues, since matter and sense generate a confusing diversity of opinions in place of truth, truth which by contrast is clear and simple. Only when healed by God's grace is the soul able to intuit the immutable form of things that ever equal beauty, always like itself, unextended in space, unchanged in time, the beauty that preserves itself in all things single and identical, that beauty which men do not believe in, Augustine says, yet which really exists and indeed exists in the highest measure of being. The way St. Augustine juxtaposed these standard Platonic categories has striking structural similarities with Raphael's visual contrasts in the Disputin and School of Athens. On the one hand, ultimate truth, a higher reality, uh, invisible to bodily sight, unextended in space, unchanged in time, single and identical, versus the multiplicity of material things. In the Disputa, we are shown the beauty which men do not believe in, yet which exists in the highest measure of being, God, who is unextended in space, depicted, in fact, against an archaic gold-leaf background. By contrast, in the school of Athens, Plato points heavenwards to a higher truth that is still invisible. The space defined by the architecture overhead remains unoccupied. Turning then from this profound but empty space of pagan speculation back to the populous spacelessness of the upper portion of the disputa, it is clear that Raphael intended the facing areas of wall to be visually as well as intellectually complementary. The great arches of the school of Athens mirror the semicircle of Christ's cherub aureole giving material depth to what in itself is immaterial and unextended. The language is St. Augustine's. Another structural contrast between Raphael's two scenes depends on the second platonic distinction evoked by St. Augustine, that between 
the multiplicity and diversity of sense experience on the one hand, and spiritual beauty which is single and identical on the other. The central compositional unit of the School of Athens is multiple and diverse, the binary group of Plato and Aristotle, implying the pluralism of ancient classical thought. On the opposite wall, in the Disputa, the central unit of composition is singular and identical, the vertical core of forms lifting our eye from the Eucharist to the Spirit, Christ, and the Father, one God in three persons. This central oneness in the Disputa is further emphasized by the gazes and gestures that many of the lower-level figures direct toward the altar, very different from the breakup into self-absorbed, psychologically unconnected groups in the School of Athens. Again, it is a calibrated complementarity that seems to allude to the most difficult conundrum of ancient thought, the contradictory claims on consciousness of the one and of the many, the urge toward synthesis and belief in an underlying unity in nature and experience, apparently at odds with the infinite multiplicity that sensory data reveals. And yet, the school of Athens and the Disputa are not mere negative foils. The two frescoes illustrate a positive progression. The philosophers move toward Christ. The pagans are in the church. This notion was in fact deeply rooted in the Italian humanism of the 14th and 15th centuries. Giovanni Boccaccio, for example, applying the question of the one and the many to the basic religious issue of monotheism versus polytheism, insisted that the ancients had used polytheistic language for literary reasons, not because they really accepted a multiplicity of gods. Boccaccio asks, who is witless enough to suppose that a man deeply versed in philosophy hadn't more sense than to accept polytheism? These ancient sages, he believed, were most devoted investigators of truth and went as far as the human mind can penetrate. Thus, they knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that there is but one God. The multitude of other gods, they looked upon not as gods, but as members or functions of divinity. Such was Plato's opinion, Boccaccio says, and we call him a theologian. Building on these ideas, another early humanist, Coluccio Salutati, claimed that although the full mystery of God, the mystery of the Holy Trinity, remained hidden from pagan writers, nevertheless, Salutati says, much that they said about their own gods while they struggled to lift them to the majesty of deity was in conformity with the true God. That is, Salutati saw polytheism as an effort to penetrate the mystery and profundity of the Trinity, ultimate source both of oneness and manyness in all that exists. The Trinity, a single deity, Salutati calls God the supreme simplicity, in whom, however, are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps the clearest 15th century exposition of these ideas is Giovanni Caldiera's Concord of the Poets, Philosophers, and Theologians, written in the Mid-Quattrocento. Insisting that the ancient pagans really, if obscurely, understood God, Caldiera distinguished three levels of apprehension of the mystery, philosophical, poetic, 
and finally theological. He also used literary images very similar to the visual ones Raphael later introduced in the Stanza de la Segnatura. Caldera said that philosophers observing the first causes of things situated the generative force of all the elements, uh, of all life in the elements. He said, some thought this generative force to be fire, still others water or earth. Wherefore, the poets then assigned the principle of divinity to these prime elements. Caldera considered these ancient poetic paraphrases of philosophical intuitions to be higher, nearer ultimate truth, much as in the Stanza de la Segnatura, the assembly of poets on Mount Parnassus, above the window aperture, occupies a higher space than that of the philosophers in the School of Athens, and is nearer the level of God in the disputa. Turning to sacred scripture, Caldera argued that besides this natural kind of knowledge furnished by philosophy and poetry, there is another mode in which the divine light is infused into our minds. Revelation, the heaven-sent information about supernatural realities, what an inscription uh, painted uh, in the ceiling above the disputa calls divinarum rerum notitia, news of divine things. Caldera cites Jewish and Christian authors who transmitted these predictions to us in writing after the Son of God had assumed human flesh and protected a secret divinity between the veil of humanity in order to fully complete the mystery of the passion and redeem lost humankind. And in the Disputa, Raphael in fact illustrates these writings, the four Gospels displayed by Putti, directly below Christ veiled with humanity and showing the wounds of his passion. The intellectually revelatory function of the incarnate Christ is stressed by other 15th century thinkers. Some years after Caldiera, the Florentine humanist, and like myself, a canon of the Florence Cathedral, uh, asked, he never spoke at Stanford, of course, uh, Marsilio Ficino asked uh, what else was Christ but a certain living book of moral and divine philosophy sent from heaven and manifesting the divine idea of the virtues to human eyes. Here in the Pope's library, Raphael, Raphael shows us that living book of moral and divine philosophy, Christ in the center of the disputa as the higher truth about which the discussants in the school of Athens obscurely reason, not yet able to penetrate, the veil beyond which only faith in the incarnation and passion may lead. There is a still more extraordinary aspect to these interconnections, however. Educated people in the Renaissance believed that if the pagan philosophers could reason about the mystery of God, it was not by their own powers, not the result of merely human dialectical skills. As Ficino insisted, if the Greek philosophers have any outstanding dogmas and mysteries, they usurp them from the Jews. Plato, he says, imitated the Jews, was nothing but Moses speaking in the Attic tongue. And the Platonists used the divine light of the Christians to interpret the divine Plato. This, says Ficino, no modern scholar would hold this opinion, this is what Basil the Great and Augustine proved, that the Platonists usurped the mysteries of the evangelist John for themselves. That is, the obscure intuitions of a spiritual truth akin to Judeo-Christian belief 
that we find in ancient philosophy and poetry can be explained by the early influence of Jewish prophecy and of the Mosaic law on Greek thought. Ficino says that the Greeks did not clearly understand what they had usurped, but nourished the hope that one day they would attain to full enlightenment. Plato, he says, predicted in his letters that these mysteries could at length become manifest to men after many centuries. And Ficino adds that this indeed happened immediately after the preaching and writing of the apostles and apostolic disciples, for the Platonists used the divine light of Christians to interpret the divine Plato. What these humanists were expressing and what Raphael illustrated in the grand facing frescoes of the stanza is a millennial Christian belief that every human quest for wisdom is inspired by God, the universal Father who through his spirit of truth and often across centuries of slow cultural evolution brings women and men to Christ, Christ the power and wisdom of God personified as the first letter to the Corinthians calls him. Another first century Christian text describes the privilege of believers who, after countless centuries of human striving, uh, understand what earlier seekers had never grasped. The letter to the Ephesians states that God has let us know the mystery of his purpose, the hidden plan he so kindly made in Christ from the beginning to act upon when the times had run their course to the end. In their search for wisdom, Raphael's pagan thinkers are part of God's hidden plan made in Christ from the beginning. They have embarked upon a search that will end only when the void above Plato is filled and men at last lift their eyes from the multiplicity and diversity of speculative reason to that living book of moral and divine philosophy sent from heaven, who is Christ. And when they do, the lesson this living book will impart is precisely that of unity in diversity, the solution to the ancient problem of the one and the many. The hidden plan that God so kindly made in Christ from the beginning, the letter to the Ephesians continues, was in fact that he would bring everything together under Christ as head, everything in the heavens and everything on earth. In Christian belief, in fact, Christ is the source both of unity and of multiplicity. He is a visible image of the unseen God, as the letter to the Colossians says, and thus supreme simplicity in Salutatis phrase. At the same time, he is God's word through whom all the world's diversity was defined. In him were created all things in heaven and on earth. The same letter to the Colossians goes on. Throughout time, moreover, he holds all things in unity. And that again is a verse from the first chapter of uh, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, the three verses are uh, Colossians 1, 15, 16, and 17. He is uh, the one, therefore, who holds all things in unity, reconciling the inherent contradiction between manyness and oneness, resolving the problem when he reveals that divinity itself is simultaneously multiple and single, three persons in one God. The pagan thinkers have a place in the church because God's hidden plan always included them, even before they realized it. In their obscure but God-given insight that ultimate wisdom is higher than material existence, and in their yearning to solve the riddle of the one and the many, they furnished an intellectual framework upon which later ages would build. They helped move history toward Christ, the living book sent from heaven. 
They have always been in the church, and in the physical and moral space of the Stanza de la Segnatura, they stand behind the Renaissance Christian who, entering, found himself in front of them, more advanced, better able to behold a plenitude to which the pagans were not able to raise their eyes. The plenitude is Christ in the disputa on the opposite wall, a spiritual God revealed in bodily form as true man who overcame the tragic division in human nature and society, giving his life on the cross. Standing in the transept of this church that spans the ages, with the pagans behind him in the nave, a Renaissance humanist might have remembered another passage from the letter to the Ephesians, the one from the second chapter, which reads, there was a time when you who were pagans were immersed in this world without hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you that used to be so far apart from us have been brought very close by the blood of Christ. Through him, both of us have in the one spirit our way to the Father. So you are no longer aliens or foreign visitors. You are citizens like all the saints and part of God's household. You are part of a building that has the apostles and prophets for its foundations and Christ Jesus for its main cornerstone. As every structure is aligned on him, all grow into one holy temple in the Lord, and you too in him are being built into a house where God lives in the Spirit. Only a few hundred feet from where Bramante's new basilica was then being constructed, and even nearer the chapel in which Michelangelo was then painting pagan sibyls with the prophets of ancient Israel, Raphael in the Stanza de la Segnatura opened the house where God lives in the spirit to admit the ancient philosophers, poets, and lawgivers. His indeed is a Catholic, that is a universal image of the church and the glory that opens up before Plato and Aristotle in the disputa on the facing wall is a glory meant for all. The ultimate key to understanding the program that it was probably the Pope's theologians to propose to Raphael is what, Raphael, uh, what Plato and Aristotle would see if they uh, turned their gaze to the wall directly in front of them. They would not uh, really be looking up at Christ, uh, at the Spirit, uh, at God. They would be looking right ahead of them uh, at the altar and on the altar uh, the uh, monstrance, uh, this reliquary-like uh, container in which uh, Latin Catholics uh, for many centuries have exposed the consecrated bread of the Eucharist for uh, adoration. Um, for the theologians who uh, certainly uh, would have been uh, the originators of this uh, rich program, um, it was no secret uh, that the tradition of the Church spoke of the Eucharist uh, specifically. Uh, as a material manifestation of the resolution of the ancient problem of oneness and manyness, because the ancient fathers of the church uh, uh, liked uh, to emphasize that the uh, many distinct grains of wheat uh, needed to make a single loaf of bread uh, became the one body of Christ. Uh, the many distinct grapes uh, pressed to make uh, a single cup of wine uh, became uh, the blood uh, of Christ. Uh, this uh, sacrament of the Eucharist, uh, in which uh, they, like uh, 
Catholic Christians today believed uh, Christ's sacrifice uh, on the cross to be truly present, uh, indeed inscribed on the host there in the fresco, as still in uh, contemporary church use. Uh, you have the crucified Christ, uh, also provides uh, what ultimately is perhaps the most essential key uh, for modern readers. Uh, we have greatest difficulty in all of this, I think, um, adjusting to the fact that Renaissance uh, men and women could so easily span so many centuries uh, in time, uh, seeing themselves as part of uh, a movement that had begun in classical antiquity. Uh, but since the movement leads toward uh, this uh, bread and wafer in the monstrance, uh, toward the consecrated bread, the Eucharist, uh, in which they held uh, the event uh, that had taken place uh, on Calvary some 30 years after the birth of Christ, uh, the crucifixion, uh, was uh, really uh, present, uh, not in a visible way, but in a substantial way. Um, the Eucharist was for them uh, the context uh, in which uh, the limit of time uh, was uh, daily superseded. Uh, the people entering the Stanza della Signatura, uh, even if they were laymen, were close to the papal court. Uh, they were people who knew enough of theology to understand that when they went to Mass, uh, the bread uh, put them in touch with an event that had happened then, some 1,500 years uh, earlier. Uh, it is that ease uh, in uh, bridging uh, the gap between past uh, and present, but not only present, because the Eucharist is not uh, cannibal fare. It's not the body of uh, Christ as he was crucified. It is uh, his body as it was crucified and then rose. Uh, their understanding was that the Eucharist was possible because he rose and was in glory. Uh, what I'm saying is the real hermeneutical key to the program as I have presented it to you is the image that, in fact, uh, is at the center of the uh, first of the frescoes, the Disputa, the Eucharist, uh, in which past, present, and future uh, coalesce uh, in the uh, real presence of Christ. Thank you very much. We do have time for a few questions. Morton? Yeah. What are your thoughts on the recent restoration of the Estancia de la Signatura? Well, uh, I am uh, involved, uh, and so my thoughts uh, are uh, not entirely objective. Uh, I'm part of a uh, commission of scholars that the Vatican calls upon uh, for uh, advice uh, in these things. Uh, I would say that. Um, as in the Sistine Chapel, um, they have given us something that is much closer to the brilliancy of color uh, that uh, Raphael himself uh, aimed at. No restoration can completely uh, restore uh, the, the, uh, an original. Uh, there will always be differences, um, uh, in part due to time and the uh, simple physical impossibility of uh, perfectly restoring things, uh, in part due to interpretation, because the restorer obviously has to decide um, at a certain point uh, which uh, level of uh, intensity of color, for example, 
he wants to uh, achieve. But uh, on the whole, uh, I, I believe that they've done a, an extraordinary job. Not everyone would say that. <laughs> yes, Norman. In, in this case, uh, much more than in almost any other we could point to, uh, it is literally impossible that the artist could have thought it all up himself. Uh, this is so deeply learned a program uh, on two fronts, uh, on the front of uh, the classical uh, uh, information in the School of Athens and on the uh, theological front in the Disputa, not to say the Parnassus and the jurisprudence, uh, that uh, here it's, it's fairly clear that there must have been uh, very uh, articulated uh, information provided to Raphael. Raphael's task was to take the uh, dead uh, verbiage, as it were, that the scholars would have provided uh, and to make it into a visually interesting uh, composition. Uh, now, actually, I did not uh, say Pope Julius II himself. Uh, there's, um, very little to suggest that uh, Julius uh, would have been uh, interested in. He might have been capable of, because he was a learned uh, man, uh, and his library uh, speaks to that, uh, but there's no interest that, uh, indication that he would have been uh, interested in or inclined to uh, actually work out uh, the kind of uh, uh, narrative and ideological program that uh, I've been talking about. Uh, the uh, scholar who has uh, devoted most time to this, uh, to the Stanza della Segnatura, is uh, a German Jesuit uh, who teaches at uh, the uh, Gregoriana University in Rome, Father Heinrich Pfeiffer, uh, and he uh, plausibly, uh, but there's no uh, documentary proof, so it, it is supposition, uh, nonetheless, he plausibly uh, identifies uh, maybe the principal of the scholars uh, who might have been called in to devise the program uh, in Egidius uh, uh, of Viterbo. Egidius of Viterbo, who was a, a churchman and a humanist uh, in Julius II's entourage, and in whose writings uh, there are uh, numbers of passages that uh, come reasonably close uh, to the kinds of things that you find in the uh, School of Athens uh, and in the, uh, in the Disputa. Uh, it, it might have been several people. Uh, normally, though, uh, to answer, I think, one of the larger implications of your questions, um, in these important commissions, um, the artist would be, would be helped. Uh, there where the patron simply wanted uh, a conventional altarpiece, a Madonna and child, uh, probably the artist was left on his own. Sometimes uh, surviving contracts will say, uh, a Madonna and child with these three or four saints, uh, like the one in the neighboring church down the road, but more beautiful. 
but those were easy tasks. Uh, there where uh, the work was in a strategic position, important to the patron, uh, and involved uh, somewhat more uh, specialized information, uh, we normally take it for granted uh, that uh, there was uh, coaching, there was conversation. Uh, in, in, in the book that was mentioned, uh, of mine that was mentioned uh, before uh, we started, Michelangelo Teologo, uh, Michelangelo is theologian, I actually make a case for the considerable theological information that artists probably normally did have. Uh, but I also insist that uh, there where, there I was talking about the Sistine Chapel ceiling, uh, there where the work is obviously of uh, great strategic importance to the patron, uh, it's um, not reasonable to suppose that the patron would entrust uh, to uh, an artist who was a non-professional in theological matters uh, the kinds of messages uh, he wanted conveyed. So, um, uh, in the case of Michelangelo, it's important because he actually, uh, at, at a later point in life, boastfully claims uh, to have devised the whole program himself. Uh, but that's, that's simply not believable. I think that was just a moment of uh, uh, having misspoken himself, <laughs> as it were. Um, in, in some cases, we have uh, written programs, uh, the frescoes, uh, that you know, Norman, in the dome of the Florence Cathedral uh, are uh, probably the best documented case. We have two copies of um, a letter from uh, the learned uh, theologian, uh, a Benedictine monk named Vincenzo Borghini, to the first of the painters of the frescoes, Giorgio Vasari, pages and pages uh, in which the theologian spells out exactly what he thinks should be in the ceiling. What's interesting is at a certain point he says, uh, but uh, you, Giorgio, are the painter, not I. Uh, and so if what I've written is too much, feel free to take some things out. Or if it's too little, feel free to add some things. But these basic uh, 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 subjects should be treated. one could have a lot of fun. I mean, here we're just before the beginning of uh, the uh, Protestant reform, and one could say that to put the pagans into the rising nave of the new St. Peter's is the equivalent of having them in hell. But I won't say, <laughs> I won't say that. Um, there, there, there has been a rehabilitation. Uh, what the um, uh, 15th century writers uh, that I cited in talking about this, this view of uh, a kind of uh, privileged uh, coming attraction of Christianity that was uh, given to uh, uh, Plato and the other ancients uh, and so on. Uh, what they were getting at was uh, specifically an attempt uh, to, uh, yes, rehabilitate uh, the ancient writers because they had rediscovered them. Uh, they had uh, rediscovered them uh, with uh, profound emotion uh, and uh, the principle uh, reason for uh, the emotional rediscovery, different from 
uh, a philological or simply scholarly rediscovery. The principal reason for the genuinely emotional rediscovery, especially of Plato, uh, but also of other of the ancient writers in the 15th century, uh, was that uh, those humanists who were attracted to these writers, uh, first out of intellectual curiosity, um, really felt that they recognized uh, distant echoes of, of the things that they themselves believed in. Most of the early humanists were churchmen. Uh, they were clerics. Before they read Plato uh, in the original Greek, and the text became available in the original Greek, uh, the dialogue certainly, uh, many of them only in the 15th century, um, they had read Augustine in Latin. Uh, Augustine, uh, who himself was deeply influenced by Plato and by Platonic writings. So uh, they read Plato with eyes that had already wept with spiritual joy in reading Augustine. Uh, they saw more in Plato than a modern scholar uh, of uh, the uh, ancient philosophers uh, would see. Uh, but because they saw that, they, they did not want the ancient philosophers in hell. They said, these men are really our teachers. Uh, and so uh, they needed to rehabilitate them. And that's part of what Raphael is doing here. This process of rehabilitation uh, would, not, uh, would and would not last. Um, I mean, in intellectual historical terms, uh, Western Christianity does take over the whole corpus uh, of ancient thought uh, as part of uh, its, um, its equipment. Uh, in uh, the nearly religious terms in which these figures are inserted into the church uh, in Raphael's fresco, though, uh, the Catholic Counter-Reformation uh, will distance itself uh, from what it will see as the syncretistic position that's taken in works like this. So this kind of image 100 years later is almost unthinkable. Uh, this is a, a wonderful moment uh, that will not come back until maybe the 1960s and 70s. Raphael is, uh, among other things, uh, celebrating the uh, cultural achievement of Julius II's papacy. Julius II is his patron. Uh, Julius is intensely proud uh, of the fact that uh, he has called uh, the greatest uh, architects and artists of uh, that time uh, to Rome. Uh, he is uh, particularly proud of the fact that uh, he has authorized Bramante uh, to begin building the new St. Peter's. Um, the uh, dream of a new St. Peter's Basilica had been uh, in the works for decades. Uh, Julius's own uncle, uh, Pope Sixtus IV, had been one of those who would have liked to have begun the new church, but uh, didn't uh, reign long enough and didn't have the means. Um, but in the same Sistine Chapel, in one of the frescoes commissioned uh, 
by Julius's uncle, Sixtus IV, um, the fresco painted by Perugino showing Christ giving the keys of the kingdom uh, to St. Peter. In the background, uh, you have this magnificent modern church in the center of a, a splendid, uh, perfect, uh, perspectival Renaissance piazza, uh, which uh, you can only take as an allusion to the already developed dream of being able to replace the then 1,200-year-old uh, early Christian Basilica of St. Peter's with a, with a splendid new church. So Julius was very proud of the fact that uh, he had finally uh, begun what popes had been dreaming of for uh, 50 years uh, at that point. Uh, and uh, when uh, Raphael uh, situates the great thinkers of classical antiquity, these so admired uh, founders of uh, the whole Western intellectual tradition, uh, within Julius's own new church, uh, which at that point was barely at the level of the foundations, but they knew what it was going to look like, uh, that was uh, a way of saying that with the building, the rebuilding of the physical apparatus uh, of, of the church, um, in forms, uh, in architectural forms that uh, evoked in a very clear way classical antiquity, uh, Pope Julius was also uh, restoring to the church the full uh, riches of that intellectual tradition, which, which ultimately was its own, which had always been there, but which was never singled out in so explicit a way. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of complicated uh, cultural celebratory message uh, that those who were part of this circle of, of Julius' court uh, would immediately have been able to read and, and, and appreciate if that answers your question a bit, yeah. Yes. Right. In, in Raphael's case, it's probably better to say no. We, we don't know, so it could be that he read Ficino, uh, but it's more likely, or at least it's more reasonable from a historical point of view to say we have no evidence that uh, he was uh, able to uh, read philosophy in Latin. Uh, Michelangelo uh, could well have done that. Michelangelo probably knew Ficino uh, in Florence. Uh, Raphael it's much less likely. Uh, but the people who would have been advising Raphael would certainly have known the Ficino text. So um, Raphael's real skill here is in absorbing uh, this uh, somewhat specialized information and, and finding compelling ways of uh, translating it into image. I know you'll all join me in thanking Monsignor Verdun for his excellent talk. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you.